A reading from the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice in the wilderness, a voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 1. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he, he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from the heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, 
and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this opening of the gospel of Mark, that you would be with us and lead us, that your spirit would open our eyes, our ears, that we might be hearers of the word and might become doers. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this fall, we're starting a new series. It's uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be here for some time now. And the challenge, anytime we read Scripture, any, really any part of the Bible, but especially, I think, as we read these Gospel accounts of Jesus' life. In other words, we're looking very directly, very intentionally at the things that Jesus said, the things that he did, the person that he was, his life, his death, his resurrection. Anytime we begin to think on these, we face two challenges. And the first is this. Can I open up my life to the person that is principally being talked about in these texts of Scripture? Can I let, in other words, can I let Jesus engage me. Can I do that, right? I mean, that, that's a very obvious thing to say. Now, Mark isn't writing, you know, he's not writing sort of a disinterested biography or even really a, a biography just of some historical figure. He is writing the story of Jesus who is someone that he currently lives in relationship with. And he is writing this story. So that these episodes of Jesus's life, these actions, these words, he's telling this story so that a next generation of people, so that new people that hear the story of Christ might let Jesus engage them too, so that they might become disciples, followers, just as Mark is a follower. But the second challenge is this, am I willing to become open to the kind of change that Mark will argue that Jesus' life brings. It's a change to the world. It's a change that has implications for us personally, for my personal story, for your personal story. It's a change that has implications for the way we live in relationship with people, those that we find easy to live in relationship, and those that we find very difficult and challenging to live in relationship with. And it's a change that also has implications politically, socially, culturally, just in terms of just the institutional life that we live with as human beings in our world. Am I willing right, to enter that change? Am I willing to take some step into the world that Mark is going to argue Jesus brings, this realm or world that we speak of with regard to the kingdom of God? So am I open to the relationship? Am I open to being challenged by Jesus? And am I open to change, right? Am I open to these things? And these are the challenges that as we read through Mark's gospel, we're just going to come to this Week after week after week, these two things are going to surface for us over and over again. Am I going to let Jesus engage me? And am I going to take a step toward the kind of change or into the world of change that he's describing? So this morning we're looking at the opening of Mark's gospel. It's a very short opening. It's a very, uh, as, as you've noticed, if you compare it to, you know, to, to, to Matthew and to Luke, certainly you find it's a very sparse opening to Jesus' life. We don't get a lot of backstory here. We're just thrust right into the middle of the action of his life, of his story that begins to unfold. And there are three things I want to focus on this morning, and it's the word gospel, baptism, and calling. So gospel, baptism, and calling, first gospel. 
This is a gospel. What is that? Now, the moment I say the word gospel, if you've been around the church for any length of time, or if you've even been in a culture in which the church exists somewhat prominently, or you've been around Christians, you know that this is a word that gets thrown around frequently, right? I use it, many people use it, and you've experienced it in a variety of ways. It's a word that has a lot of baggage. And some of that baggage might be good baggage. In other words, it might be loaded with some great content, but some of the baggage is, is not so great. In other words, there are distortions and distorted ways that Christians have talked about and used the language of gospel uh, in our world and in our culture and historically and even in the present day. And some of you might have been in church situations or religious situations in which the word gospel even has really negative baggage for you and it almost triggers you. You're like, whoa, because you've experienced some form of abuse in certain religious contexts. So I think it's helpful whenever we come upon a word that's certainly familiar like this word to just sort of take a step back, right? Take a step back from your taken for granted understanding, all that you think you know, all that you experience, and just sit with this word for just a moment. Take a deep breath, if you will, and just remember something very simple, that this was an ordinary word. It was a non-religious word. This was a non-religious word. What does that mean? It means good news. It's a word that would be used in the common culture of the day to just talk about a pleasing message. Uh, So the way we send out a birth announcement on the birth of a child, that's a gospel. It's a pleasing message. Hey, our child was born. The way you might send out a wedding announcement, the way you might send out an anniversary announcement, the way you might tell a friend even, hey, I got a promotion. It's pleasing news. It's good news, right? It's something that's good for you. It's also something that, by the way, all of these kinds of things I've described thus far are news events or related things that change something about your life. It changes the direction. It changes a course that you're on, right, within your life. So that's just simply what this word means in everyday parlance. It's a way of talking about something good, something pleasing, something that's, that's um, helpful even. Uh, it's a normal word. It's not a religious word. Uh, it was also used politically and publicly in the setting that Mark is writing in, certainly that Jesus himself lived in. It's a word that would be used uh, inside of the Roman economy, the Roman culture, to speak of Caesar's reign within the Roman Empire. Now, some of you know that. We've we've talked about this over the different years. Uh, If you've been a part of our community, you you may know that very well. But the, the point is just simply, it was a word that was used politically to speak of the Roman Empire, the peace of Rome. Caesar would announce his reign if a new territory had been taken over with a gospel proclamation. You might celebrate his reign inside of the realm of Rome by a gospel proclamation. In other words, it's this call that announces the peace that Rome has brought to the world, and it's an urging that everyone else get beneath its banner, that you sort of fall in line, that you come under its implications for the reign. It's a word that we even could use if, if we wanted to. I'm not suggesting this, by the way, that you know, could be used in American parlance, right? And sometimes it sounds like evangelicals use this word to talk about our own sense of political victories as they may or may not happen, right? We could talk about some pleasing victory of someone that you like politically, a political party that comes to ascendancy, a political party that's defeated. You could talk about your version of good news, whatever it is. It's just an ordinary word to speak and mark something that you find to be good 
and that has implications for the way your life will now unfold. So when the New Testament writers take this word, gospel, and they begin to talk about the gospel of Jesus, like almost immediately, if you lived in that moment and you were hearing them talk about the gospel of Jesus, you would immediately go to the political contrast with Rome. Almost immediately, your mind, if you lived inside of the Roman Empire, you couldn't help but understand that in some way, Jesus is calling attention to himself as the defining center of reality, not Rome. Not your political victory, but Jesus himself. The New Testament writers are talking about the confrontation of Jesus with the brokenness of our world, publicly, politically, socially, culturally, economically, and yes, personally, which happens to be the realm that we are most comfortable living in, right? We think very individualistically about the gospel, but this is a a word that is used to proclaim the reign of God in our world that transforms all spheres of human life, every one of them. So the gospel writer in Mark here, when he, verse 1, says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark immediately wants us to know that Jesus is God's good news for the world. That the ancient and the very old promises that God has made about his coming kingdom, about his coming near, about drawing near, about changing and transforming the world in which we live in, about changing and transforming our lives inside of this world, that it's happening in the person of Jesus. I mean, that's what Mark wants us to understand. What God is bringing into the world versus all of the other stuff that is already in the world and that we have been a part of bringing into the world. God is doing some new thing. And God's peace, his shalom or wholeness, the kind of flourishing that he imagines for the world is not limited or confined in the way people would have experienced the Roman peace. Sort of the, dis, you know, what would that look like? Well, there were tremendous inequalities in Rome. There were places that certainly people that would say, hey, Rome's a good thing for me, it's working. But there were many, many people in Rome that would have said, it's not working for me. In fact, I feel silenced by Rome. I don't feel liberated by Rome. I don't feel like I have more of a voice. I don't feel like my life comes into a place of flourishing at all. And when we look in our own culture, in our own world, in our own country, there are many people that would say very much the same thing. That as great as America is, or as great as the particular country they may or may not be living in, it might be from their vantage point that there's a lack of flourishing for some. The peace that human beings have been able to craft out in our world is exceedingly limited. In the case of Rome, it was a peace that cost a lot. Big armies, fighting, war, violence. But the peace that God brings endures forever without violence. That's what Mark is drawing attention to, and he wants us to begin to think about Jesus through that lens of gospel, that we would understand what it means that um, God has come into the world in such a way that he can't be reduced to a particular racial or ethnic group, that he can't be reduced to the Roman dream then or the American dream now, uh, that he can't be reduced even to some particular religious persuasion, as you see, as Christianity begins to spread throughout the world, and that it can't even in our own day be reduced to some denominational insight. You know, Christianity is is as divided up at this point in history as it has ever been. 
And you can't reduce Jesus to any one segment of the church. That's good news. And Mark wants us to understand that. Jesus alone is the centerpiece of whatever circumstance you're in. So as you look at your life this morning, you think about the things that you've had going on this past week, or the things that bother you in world history, or the things that bother you about the American political economy, or the things that bother you about the economic realities, the things that bother you about your family of origin, Jesus is able to engage whatever that is because he is the very centerpiece of all that God is doing to make the world right, to put it right. No one else is, nothing else is. Whatever your current circumstance, whatever good news you've previously leaned in, into within your life, Jesus will always engage you in a way that confronts it. Whatever your road to happiness is, Jesus will always, if he is to grow you up, if he is to mature you as a human being, will always push you out of your depths. He will always push you into some space in which you need to begin to rethink what is at the very core of your being, what is at the very center of your sense of identity and self and your happiness. Gospel. Now, second, baptism. So here in this sort of very brief introduction, right, Mark gestures toward John the baptizer. Now, John is a really strange figure, right? I mean, and we're, we sort of begin to gather that, right? He dresses very oddly. He eats very odd choice of a minimalist diet. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is worse than paleo, right? You know, this is, this is, you know, he is like another kind of dude. He is a strange fellow, um, and, and maybe, you know, he's probably, as, as we were reading this as a staff this week, I thought, you know, if, would you go out to the wilderness to hear Mark? Like, I mean, to hear John, rather, would this be interesting to you? <laughs> like, you know, when we lived in New York City, there was this guy that walked around the streets of New York, and he would shout, glory. Now, he was an, a person of African, of, 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 he was an Af African national, actually, that lived in, the, in, in New York City. And he would just literally would walk around with this giant Bible on the streets of New York, and he's just shouting, glory. Glory, 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 all the time. And, and you're just kind of like, man, that is just one, that is so strange. I do not get it. And one day, we're sitting in our, house, in our apartment, and on the other end of the apartment, Tucker lifts the window, and he, he opens the window, and he leans out the window, and he says, I believe. And we're like, what is going on with our family? John the baptizer is a strange person. He is wearing the garments of a prophet who also were strange people in the life of Israel. He eats a diet that's strange and odd. He lives at the edges of polite society, right there in the wilderness space himself, perhaps reminiscent or an echo, really, of Israel's 40-year wandering in the desert. The wilderness is a space which is removed from the center of political power. And John, as we'll see later, and even in these next few verses, right, he's arrested by political power. So he's there at the edge of society, right, at the edge of Jerusalem, right at the borderline of, of the wilderness. And he's, he's there proclaiming this, this story of repentance. The wilderness is a space that is stripped of all of the good things that we lean into in life to prop us up. And so it's always a place of testing. It's always a place of challenge to us because it's not easy to be in a wilderness space in any particular way. Maybe metaphorically, you've lived in a wilderness space because you've experienced suffering in your life. It's not easy. It's hard to find a way of propping up yourself in a time of suffering, right? Wilderness is hard going for all of us. 
And so it's a place in which we're tested. And the question is almost always, will you lean into the words that God offers you or will you lean into some other hope, some other way of configuring human life that isn't derived from a life with God? John is there proclaiming a message of repentance because the day of God's coming near, it's near, it's going to happen. Now, when you hear a message like that, and when I hear about someone like John the Baptist, almost always I think, he must have been a scary figure. Like, I sort of, this is where I, I sort of go back into my Baptist heritage, right, where I grew up hearing sort of scary stories about the end time. And so this is where I sort of take that leap, and that's where a word like repentance becomes triggering for me. It's like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? You know? Uh, you know? Now, but importantly, why is God coming near? To save, to liberate, to bring the world into alignment with his good intentions for wholeness, for the flourishing of all life everywhere among all peoples. That's John's message. He's telling us God is going to put things right. He's going to do what he's always promised to do. And John seems to have adapted this ritual washing of baptism that would, might have been commonly used or was commonly used for non-Jewish converts to Judaism, right? And so here John applies this to his message of repentance. So if you've come out and you're Jewish in this case, because that's who his audience was, you come out to hear this message of repentance, which is all he's doing is saying, hey, God's kingdom is coming. And the question for them is, are you aligned with that or not? Do you want that or do you want another promise? Do you want that which God actually promises or something else? And the moment someone would say, I want that which God actually promises, the symbolic sort of attachment to that, the way of saying I'm in, was baptism. It was a way of saying I'm in, I'm with God in this. I want that which God promises. I'm willing to wait for that which God promises. Mark says that the masses of people were coming out to, this, to hear John preach this word and then to be baptized. It's a remarkable moment in Israel's history, I think. Now, you can imagine if something strange like that were happening at the borderline of Philadelphia and the wilderness outside of Philadelphia. Sorry for those of you that live in the suburbs to characterize your life that way. But if you were to hear about something like that happening, right, at the edges of, of town, um, and it was popular, and masses were going out to sort of hear John and to be baptized. There, there's, and he's a curious figure, right? There's some weird charisma going on here. You would probably want to go out too. You'd be curious about that, and you'd be easily sort of, um, you'd easily put John at the very center of your hope, right? That's just what we do. It's what human beings do. We get fixated on people that bring us good news. We get attached to people that bring us good news. We get falsely attached to people, dangerously attached sometimes to people that bring us good news. John is such a person, and John just simply says, no, I'm not the point. <laughs> I am not the good news. The good news is someone stronger, someone greater than me, right? That's the good news. It's about him. I announce him. I get you ready for him. I remind you of God's promises so that when he shows up, you discern him, you attach yourself to him, you connect with him, you follow him. My baptism is with water, but his is in the Holy Spirit, which is a way, I think, of saying that what God is going to do when the Messiah comes is to bring about the possibility of your life so reconnected with God's own self 
that you change from the inside out, that you're transformed from the inside out. It's not just an external washing. It's not just that things got tidied up or dirt got cleaned off. It's that God lives and inhabits your being by the Holy Spirit. And so just when you're ready for this figure to show up, Jesus does show up, but oddly, to be baptized. And it's a really disconcerting thing. The other gospel writers talk about that, all right, in part, that John's uncomfortable with that. Mark doesn't sort of elaborate on that, but it's helpful to remember that this is just odd that Messiah would then come to John and say, baptize me. It's a strange thing. It's a surprising thing. It's another way in which we see that whenever you encounter the real Jesus, he pushes you out of your depths. He pushes you into some unknown space, some space you weren't thinking about going to, something you weren't thinking about in your life that might need to change. And that's happening for John, even in this particular moment. But there Jesus is in this moment of baptism, and John is surprised. And Jesus, simply like everyone else, shows up, and he says, I'm aligned with God. I'm with this program of the kingdom. I believe this message of the kingdom. I'm aligned with that which God is doing. And very importantly, I think, this action of Jesus shows us that he's aligned with us too. He understands our plight. He gets our dilemma. He understands the the, the struggle that we live with in this life. He understands our suffering. He understands our brokenness. And so with us in our lament and the way we embrace this promise of God, Jesus shows up in the promise of God deeply connected to us. Verse 10, and just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I'm well pleased. Jesus has some type of vision in this moment of his baptism. Mark says the heavens were torn apart, which is an interesting turn of phrase that might connect back to an earlier passage in Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah himself prays that God would tear the heavens and come down. Now, why do you pray prayers like that? Why would you ever pray a prayer to God, tear the heavens and come down? Because you were in a circumstance in which you realize you have no resources to engage that circumstance. You're in a circumstance in which you recognize the brokenness of life that you're experiencing demands some outside intervention. In other words, if God doesn't save, how will you be saved? If God doesn't address your struggle, how can it be addressed? So Isaiah imagines this moment in his own history and the history of Israel when he says, we desperately need God to show up in our world to bring his kingdom, to bring his reign, to bring his shalom Otherwise, the ruin, the injustice of life, the brokenness, the sadness will just be perpetuated on and on and on. And so what Mark draws attention to as he tells the story of Jesus' baptism is that God tore the heavens in Jesus. He came down. He's shown up. And here in this moment, the Father speaks, the dove, the Spirit descends, like a dove rather, It's this moment of Trinitarian revelation almost, right? In which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this holy moment of absolute delight. Why now? Why this moment? God the Father delights in Jesus in this particular moment. 
And he says, you are my beloved son. My beloved son. With you, I'm pleased. And the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus like a dove might light on a branch. It's a picture that we're meant to imagine this going on. It's a moment when God delights in the Son. Why? Because the Son delights in the plan of God to bring salvation to the earth and because the Son is willing to identify with people like us who are broken, who are hurt, who piece together life as best we can. He delights in us. The Father delights in the Son as he delights in us. It's a beautiful moment. Then look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. Again, perhaps an echo of Israel's wilderness wanderings where they figure themselves out in relation to God, having been delivered, right, by by God from slavery. But it's a moment when Jesus is tempted by Satan and where he's with the wild beast and the angels wait on him in that space. Now, that feels jarring to me. I don't know. You know, and, and it's interesting that Mark, I love Mark's word choice, but it is so jarring because he says the Spirit immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. I like to think Jesus said, I think I'll take a retreat in the wilderness. But that's not at all what it says. It says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the Satan. That is the personification of diabolical evil confronts Jesus with other words about life and meaning and peace and his own sonship. And the question before Jesus would be, do I lean into that which I've just heard the Father say, or do I lean into these other words? What will define me as a human being? What will define me as a son of God? Whose word will be over my life as a son of God? And the wild beasts are there. Maybe that's just a general reference to the craziness of the desert and the brokenness of its, its undomesticated realities, or maybe it's even a gesture to places in Scripture where the kinds of corrupt political institutions that human beings have created throughout history are referenced to as beasts. Jesus is going to encounter the full weight of human brokenness. He lives in the world the way we live in the world. He doesn't hover over the world. He doesn't sort of glide over the world. But his feet are on the ground in our world, in our shoes, as it were. He gets us. And there, too, are the angels waiting on him. This love fest of the waters of baptism have moved to the places of wilderness where you and I live life. And that's the point. The Spirit leads Jesus to be the Son there, and that will be our own challenge as well. As we hear the words of Jesus, as we encounter the Spirit in our own lives, the challenge will be, will we live with the words of God, or will we, in our own testing, our own temptation, sort of lean into other words, other hopes, other ideas about life? And Mark doesn't expand the story of his temptation into all the parts and the details, but he does tell us that it happened And that God was present there too by the angels attending to Jesus, providing for Jesus. So gospel, baptism, now third, the calling of Jesus and Jesus' call to us. Mark moves very quickly now 
to another future moment after John has been arrested. He just leaps over parts of the story that other gospel writers tell about, tell us about, and ordered us to tell us, look, John the Baptist was arrested in prison by the political powers of his day, and Jesus at that very moment goes into Galilee, and he becomes the one who is at the very center of its proclamation. And the proclamation is just very simple. He's announcing the good news of God's reign. The kingdom is very close. It's here. It's near. And he urges those who are hearing him talk about the kingdom of God to repent and to believe that this is trustworthy news. It's not fake news. It's something you can actually build your life on. Now, I want to lean into the word repentance for a moment because that's the heart of Jesus' message once he announces the presence of the kingdom And repentance is another word that gets co-opted in the religious world and has a lot of baggage with it. But again, need to back off and just remember, it's an ordinary word. It's just an ordinary word that means to change your mind or it means to change your life direction. It means to turn around and go in another direction. Uh, And that's what it's about. Little story. A number of years ago, on one of our family jaunts outside the city, because if you live in the city, you do need to get out into the wilderness every once in a while. So we decided to take, uh, to take a trip to Harper's Ferry, which is where, right, you know, Virginia, you know, West Virginia and Maryland come together at a point, right? It's a beautiful part of the country. It's a wonderful little, little trip for the family. But we left late in the afternoon uh, on a Friday, I think it was. And so we're leaving late, which means what? It means that we're going to hit Washington traffic, and it means that we're going to get into Harper's Ferry very late. And it was about midnight as we're coming into this space where still cell phone service feels rather sparse. We're making our way. I turn down a dirt road and we begin to go down into this little hollow where I'm like, where in the world are we? What are we doing in this space? And it begins to feel rather scary. The kids are asleep in the back seat because they've fallen asleep by now. Stacy and I are like trying to navigate this thing and figure out where, where in the world we are. And we're traveling down this dirt road. And in my mind, it's banjos are playing. Hound dogs are under the porch, and I'm like, this isn't cool. Is this the house I rented on Airbnb? So I back out of the driveway, and we make our way back up to the main road where we begin to say, can we drive somewhere where we actually have cell service and remap where we're going? And so we do that, and sure enough, we had made a wrong turn. And we find ourselves back on the road, moving in a right direction, and landing in a house that feels actually habitable for these urban dwellers. Repentance. It's something like that. It's a change of mind. It's turning around. It's getting a new read on reality. It's fixing our sort of aim on that new read on reality and moving in the direction that we ought to be moving into. We are born into this world that is very much not the way it ought to be. You feel that, and I don't need to persuade you of that at all. Because when you think about your own life story, there's a lot of pain there in your story. You know it's pain. You know what's been hard for you. You know the disappointments of life. You know the places where you feel like you haven't been loved well. You know the places where maybe even you've been a victim to some form of abuse or hard thing from some other person or institution. 
you know your pain and you know the stories that are in our world that are stories of pain. You know it's brokenness. You know that you at least want to say it's broken and not normal. We're born into this world and as we make our way in this world of broken experiences as human beings, we become part of the brokenness. We cultivate ourselves. I do it all the time, and you do it all the time. You know, and, and I do it in ways that I'm even completely unaware of. And every once in a while, someone close to me you know, will say, are you aware of the pain you're causing? <laughs> you know, and it's a grace moment, right, when someone says, are you aware of the pain that you're causing? Are you aware of the way you live in this circumstance of your life that's not healthy or productive or helping us flourish? We perpetuate it. We cultivate it. It's just what we do. It's the world we inhabit. It's the world that we're born into. But what if God has done something that allows you to see its brokenness, but in the face of his kindness and his goodness, that is deliverance, that moves you from brokenness to flourishing into life? See, that's the point that Mark will make throughout this gospel, that Jesus is that happening. He is that event. He is the one through whom God has done something that has changed the possibility for your life and for our world too. For all of it, we've learned to make sense of life as best we can, but God would deliver us to his own vision of life and help us to understand how we might become a part of that which he is doing that is greater than our lives. When Jesus says, repent and believe, what is he asking of me and what is he asking of you? He's asking very simply, I think, that we would begin to take that hard look in ourselves as we look at him. As we see the kind of savior that he is, the kind of person that he is, the kinds of words that he says, the actions that he takes, ultimately the action of self-giving love and death, that we would let that become a story and a reality that anchors our lives in this world now as we wait for the fullness of his coming kingdom. In short, God says, why don't you join me in what I'm doing? Why don't you connect deeply with what I'm doing? As we read through Mark from week to week, those are the challenges that we're going to face. We're going to feel those week after week. There's going to be these spaces of hearing Jesus, and the question will be, well, I hear Jesus. And there are going to be these moments where our imagination for the kind of change, the kind of world, the kingdom that God imagines and talks about, that it's going to become a little bit clearer for us because you're going to see it in the life of Jesus being enacted in the world. And the question is, will I take a step toward that world? Will I move toward Jesus and therefore move into that world of change? Will I let him engage me? Will I be open to his engagement? And will I enter the world that he's bringing? Jürgen Moltmann, let me just close this way. He, he, he is a German theologian. Um, he, was a, he was a soldier during World War II. He wasn't a, a particularly a Christian man at the time, and he wasn't a theologian, certainly, at that time. Uh, and he, he was a German soldier, and he was uh, captured uh, by the British in 1945, and he was in a Scottish prison. Uh, and, um, and in that prison context of being a prisoner of war, the British showed the captives pictures of concentration camps and helped them to see 
what they had been a part of perpetuating. In other words, they just begins, it becomes a space of illumination, right? Will you see that the war you've been fighting, maybe for some other reason, that this is really what's going on. This is the reality behind that which is going on and which you've been a part of. And Moltmann describes um, just waking up to the nightmare that the reasons he thought he had been fighting weren't the real reasons of what was actually going on or behind what was happening. And one of the chaplains in the prison gave the prisoners Bibles to read. You know, that's a good Scottish thing to do. You know, Scottish Presbyterians, you know, you give them Bibles. And so he gave them a Bible and he describes reading uh, the Gospel of Mark, which becomes his moment of conversion, actually. And listen to what he says. He says, I read Mark's Gospel as a whole, and I came to the story of Jesus' passion. That's the story of Jesus' death, right? And when I heard Jesus' death cry, where he cries out on the cross, so imagine it, right? At the end of the gospel, there's a moment where Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moltmann says this, he says, I felt growing within me this conviction that this, this is someone who understands my plight. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's Moltmann, right? And you can just imagine the drama of this, the intensity of this. You've been fighting a war that wasn't about the causes you thought it was about. You've seen the destruction. You've seen the horror that your life has helped perpetuate. And there you are in the prison cell, and you're reading this story of Jesus' life. And all of a sudden, you wake up and you think, God in our world, Jesus, knows what forsakenness feels like. He gets me. He says, I felt this growing sense within me that this someone, there is someone who understands you completely, who is with you in your cry to God, and has felt the same forsakenness that you are now living within. And I summed up the courage to live again. Where are you? Where are you with God? Where are you in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants to say to you? Where are you in your experience of the brokenness of your human life? Are you in a place of success and, you know, everything's sort of going your way? Like, you can't imagine it not going your way? Are you in a low place where it feels like everything always doesn't go your way? What would it look like for you just this morning to, to realize, just in this little short text of Scripture that we've read, that God gets you? He knows your story. And he can give you courage to live, to live in the path of Jesus, to live in the likeness of Jesus, to wake up to a whole new way of being human. That's the call of this gospel. We're going to visit it every week. Along the way, and even today, if you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you about that. I know Jonathan's happy to talk to you about that. Um, Chris is happy to talk to you about that. Community group leaders are happy to talk to you about that because we want to be a community in which we bring our questions to one another. We live with our doubts. We raise our doubts with one another. We, we sort of wrestle together with what would it mean for us to let Jesus engage us and for us to become persons in a community that move into the kind of change that he articulates for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this really remarkable person of Jesus, 
the story as Mark begins to unfold it, that you would help us to open our hearts, that we would be open to hearing from you, and that we would be open to the change that you talk about for us and for our world. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.